definitely not be preaching as long as last Sunday night. Uh, thank you for your patience last Sunday, but uh, I did warn you beforehand, so I guess there is that. But um, <clears throat> Come to the end of the Gospel of John, and we come to the end of Galatians uh, tonight, or near unto the end, Galatians chapter 6 and verses 11 through 16. Galatians 6, 11 through 16. You'll notice there are two more verses, so we definitely won't be done tonight. The cross is offensive. The cross is offensive. I think in many ways, everything said in the book is now put together in a very short portion here at the end. And the text reads this way. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace, mercy be upon them, even, rather than and, even upon the Israel of God. All right, this is Paul's conclusion written with his own hand. Seems to wrap up the letter, uh, the whole of the letter. He has said things in length, and now it's put forth bluntly in a few verses. Um, In our day and age, we don't seem, obviously, to wrestle with the issue of circumcision. Probably not going to have many conversations about circumcision at work this week. Uh, It's not something that people seem to debate as much in any way today. It's a thing of the past. It's simply brought before us because it is in the text And it was an issue, certainly, in Paul's day, in the situation that he was facing, ministering to Gentiles in the Jewish society that demanded circumcision. So that's why it keeps coming up for him. For the Jews, uh, just in a general sense, if a person's not circumcised, uh, then they can't be a part of the religious ceremonies of the Jewish synagogue. They would be unclean. That's why you'd have some issues with uh, Titus or uh, Timothy being circumcised or not being circumcised. And then there was for the Jewish people a certain level of pride uh, in counting the number of people they coerced into being circumcised, such as you got these Gentiles to be circumcised. It almost became somewhat of a badge of honor that you were able to get these Gentiles circumcised. Um, and I suppose. And I'm reaching here just a little bit into my own world, but I suppose that it was even theoretically possible that when someone announced that they led some Gentiles to get circumcised, like maybe they led five people to get circumcised, maybe the Jews who heard the announcement even clapped 
and said amen when the number was announced. This is Paul's day. It's real. It's a real issue. The implications for us are a little different. It's the same philosophy, just with different words. So, as I said, circumcision is not the word we discuss in 21st century American religion. Uh, But we have the same issue, just different wording. Our issue is with pronouncing people saved. That's our issue. Evangelicalism of our day uh, has an infinite number of ways, infinite, to count converts. There is no end to the way that converts are counted. We have, I say just speaking in the evangelical American religion, we have become a numbers people. And that mentality is placed upon every new young pastor when he comes to a church. The demand is high, and if you don't produce the numbers, you might not work here very long. Numbers are up, people are happy. Numbers are down, everybody's griping and asking where everybody's at. We know how to generate numbers, we know how to celebrate numbers, even if we don't even know the people that we're celebrating about. The reports are given in church life, nothing's changed in our generation, it don't happen here maybe, but don't kid yourself, it's still happening everywhere. The reports are given, 10 people are saved, 20 people were saved. Oh, well, a whole bunch of people were saved, or as Mike Stockwell likes to say, well, there was an innumerable amount of people that got saved. And the church has been taught, like Pavlov's dog, to clap and say amen at whatever the number may be. Ten people got saved. Amen. What are you amening anyways? Do you even know any of the ten? Do you know anything about them Are you just clapping because that's what you've been taught to do? And here's what happens in the circles that I live in, that you live in. When numbers are given and people rejoice, man, if you were to ask a question, the whole tenor of everything changes and you become enemy number one. And it goes something like this. I ask the question. I just simply ask. Somebody says, hey, I say to them, how was your church? It was great. 20 people were saved. Really, how do you know they got saved? Now we're in a fight. Why are we in a fight? I just want to know how you know. Just, I, it's just a question. Just tell me how you know. Or I may say something like this. Oh, ten people got saved. What are their names? What do you mean, what are their names? I mean, what are their names? I mean, I think salvation's a big deal. And if somebody is 18 years old, and for 18 years they've been walking with the devil, and now they have faith in Christ, I think it just becomes of me that I ought to at least know their name and say, Jeffrey, I'm glad that you believe in Christ. I think it's significant enough that we ought to know their name. And I think we ought to record their name, and we ought to pray for them by name. And so I think you should at least know their name. Then people get upset. Or then I say something like this that I often said at Beautiful Feet Ministries. I said, exactly at what point will they be baptized? I've been here three years at Beautiful Feet, and you've never baptized anybody. How am I supposed to conclude that anybody got saved? Yeah, that gets you kicked out of that ministry, I can tell you that. These questions seem to irritate and anger evangelical leaders in our day. Somebody says to me, how many people got saved at By the Word Baptist Church? Well, I know one. 
What's her name? Reagan. How do you know? She gave her testimony right up here. I heard her testimony, and she spoke it out and wrote it down. We all came by, and we welcomed her, and we gave her a hug, and we rejoiced at what God was doing in her life. What's wrong with that? Only one? That one's important. Right? And so we can celebrate that one. Well, my thesis is carnal men take great pride in external things, but Christians rejoice in the work of the cross. Now, verses 11 through 13, the word circumcised is the highlight or the point of verses 11 through 13. I'm not going to do much with this. Again, I know there's a lot of ink spilled here on Paul writing with large letters. I know there's discussion about his eyesight. There's discussions about his ability to write. There's all of this stuff. I understand that's there, but I don't know exactly what to do with it. Maybe it means he wrote in all caps. Maybe he ended his sentences with an exclamation mark. I'm not sure. Maybe he just wrote with big letters. Or possibly, since this is an earlier letter of Paul, it would be one of his longest letters when he wrote it, so it was a large letter. I don't know. Take your pick. But that's all the time I'm giving to it. He wrote to them with large letters. Now, he says here in our text in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing. He's confronting these Galatian troublemakers about them insisting on people being circumcised. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. And then he says they would even force you to be circumcised, but only the only reason they're doing this, this is Paul saying this to these religious people in this church in a sense there that are persecuting and bothering his congregation, they only do this in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Their method is to get out of the difficulty of clinging to the cross alone. They make a show. They desire, what they desire is to make a showing before men. I'm going to announce that I got these people circumcised and then all the Jewish religious leaders will be happy with me and they will praise the effort that I did in getting these people to be circumcised. They want to make a show. That's what the text says. I'm going to do something externally that produces the praise of men. Jewish leaders like circumcision, I get somebody circumcised, they're happy with me. Good show. The troublemakers of Galatia do this, and the text is clear, in order that other people will applaud what they do. Now, they go farther than this, they're even willing to force people into circumcision. The Greek word is to compel someone to act in a particular manner. I've got to do something to make you do this. I've got to force you. I've got to, whether it's through guilt, whether it's through manipulation, or maybe even by brute force, I've got to get you to do this at all costs in order that others will applaud what I have done. Now, this word for forced is used in a couple of places, and I picked these other places because it goes with our discussion tonight. But in Galatians 2, same book, Galatians 2, 3, he says, 
But even Titus, Galatians 2, 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So here's an example of a man who wasn't forced to be circumcised. Then if you look at Galatians 2.14, in 2.14, Paul says, When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So he says this to Peter in their little conflict. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, here's what Paul asked him. How, Peter... Can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What, Peter, what gives you the right to make Gentiles do this circumcision? What gives you the right to force them to do that? This was a conflict, and it caused a spat between Paul and Peter. I've already preached that, but I'm just reminding you that the word has to do with force. Now, I have to ask this question, but why would you force somebody religiously? When would you force someone to do something? Well, because the cross is a problem. If I cling to the cross alone as sufficient, it's going to put me in conflict with the other Jewish leaders. And if I'm in conflict with them, they may not allow me to be a part of the Jewish ceremonies, and I may be cast out, and it may cost me something. So I've got to figure out a way to navigate that I don't have to go through such persecution and can remain religious at the same time. If I adhere to the cross alone for salvation, apart from circumcision, just the cross... I am going to be in hot water with all the religious leaders. They're going to be mad at me. I don't want that. So I'm going to say, believe in Jesus and be circumcised. And we can have both things, and then I can save myself a lot of controversy. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration, but I couldn't come up with nothing. So I'm just resorting back to my Freemasonry battles and it may not even be an issue anymore. I've kind of lost track uh, with them. But I know it was in the day in which I dealt with it. But so like in Freemasonry, it would be like this. If a man in the city held to the cross alone as sufficient for salvation, and he completely rejected the cultic secrecy of Freemasonry, if he did that and called them a cult, it would cost him dearly. It cost him in business. If he was at Lockheed Martin, it would cost his process of moving up in the ranks. You don't believe that. Ask somebody who's not a Mason who declares Masonry to be wrong and ask them how fast they moved up at Lockheed and how fast others moved up who were Mason. So it's like, if I take this position and claim this other position wrong, it's going to cost. So here's the lie for Freemasonry. You can be a Mason and a Christian. And you can balance both of these. You won't be persecuted by us, and you'll have favor at the church. That situation, similarity, is exactly what's going on with the issue of circumcision in Paul's day. Here's the problem. Those who are forcing people to become circumcised, they don't even keep the law themselves. 
you're forcing these people to do this one law while you're breaking all these other laws. If being circumcised is an act of obedience to the law, why is it that those who pressure others to be law keepers live such unlawful lives? They have magnified one issue and they keep and have, they magnify the one, the one law that they keep and then they nullify the ones that they have no intention of ever keeping. If you need all of that in short language, they are hypocrites. That's all they are. Okay. You say, well, pastor, this doesn't apply to us necessarily. Remember, we have the same issue just in different verbiage. So in application, evangelicals, American Christianity, American religion, we love, and I'm saying we generally, not just speaking, not speaking of our church per se, but just this American religion, if you will. Evangelicals love the praise of men so much they will do most anything that will produce a measurable number of converts. It, I mean, you... You can't even imagine the things that would be done just to get a number. And at the same time they would do all of these gimmicks, you'll have a pastor stand before a church, brag about the number of converts, only to be exposed as an adulterer while he was bragging about the converts. You, 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 you praise this one thing while you're not living the Christianity yourself. Praise the convert but hypocritically live the life. Pastor brags. This happened, by the way. I won't tell you where. Pastor brags about the number of people who are converted while in his office his son and the other teenagers are looking at pornography on the pastor's computer, of which I confronted and exposed him, and he would do nothing. Hey, look at the numbers. Look at the church. I don't even look in your office. That revival ended quickly evangelicals, this is sad, and I've done it, and I know, so I speak from experience because I've done some of these things here coming up, but evangelicals will use coercion, coercion, guilt, emotional manipulation, prizes even, to force men and women, boys and girls, to make some type of public assent to faith in Christ. For many, the end justifies the means. Graphic story here, even in Azel, Texas, I go to a church that's hosting the, what do you call it, the power team or the strongman team or whatever it is, muscle-bound men ripping phone books. And so you go to this thing, and at the end, if you come forward and get saved, you get to go in the back with all the muscle men. And when you go back with the muscle men, you get a t-shirt, you get a hat, you get a bag, and you get all these prizes. And I'm sitting there observing all of this nonsense at this church here in Azel, and this person comes walking down the aisle to get saved. I grab a hold of them. I pull them over and I say, what are you doing? I'm going forward to get saved. How many times are you going to get saved? I know you. I know your track record here. What are you going forward again for? And she says to me, but if I go forward, I get free stuff. This is what she said right there on the aisle. And after we talked, she went on forward. And here's the thing. When you get done and the church gets done with the power team and they rip their phone books, they say, 50-something people were saved. Amen. Amen. That's good stuff. 
And they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. And all of it is this superficial pressing and forcing people in order to make a decision, in order that the church or the leaders look good. Nobody ever asks, did you faithfully exposit the word of God? That's not a question. Have you maintained submission unto Christ, walking a godly life for decades? That's not a question. The only question is, how many people got saved? How many people came to the service? And everything is measured off the number. Why do they do this? Because to simply preach Christ crucified and trust the Spirit of God to work in somebody's heart and bring them to faith in Christ is not externally measurable at the end of the service, and we have nothing to report, and nobody gets to brag. Somebody says to me, well, how do people in your church get saved? By the Spirit of the living God. The gospel is preached, conviction is brought in, and somewhere in that process, God brings them to the doorstep of the pastor, and they say, I think I need to be baptized. And we talk, and we counsel, and they give testimony, and they get baptized. It's like, we're not prohibiting somebody from getting saved. When the Spirit of God works, you'll know when they stand up here, they at least are giving public testimony to what's happened in their heart. It's not a foolproof, but it's certainly safer than the nonsense going on in American religion. If you want a little data from the old days of the Southern Baptist Convention, the North American Mission Board changed their philosophy. They used to give you a lot of money at first, and as time went on, they weaned you down. As your church became bigger, they weaned you down till you become self-supportive. They flipped that now. And so when you start a church with the North American Vision Board, they give you a little bit of money. And if you get enough numbers generated, they'll up your pay. And you generate some more numbers, they'll up your pay. And so now there's a motive for you to get numbers because your check will get bigger. You don't believe that? Ask John Speed. Now, I'll tell you this. I've been in enough convention stuff in my life to know it for a fact. They will never give an award to a faithful pastor. It's not measurable. There's no numerical value to it. They don't give awards. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention will be next week. There's no award going to be given. This church is healthy. They're never going to talk about a healthy church. The only awards are going to be given is to the church that led in baptisms. They're getting the award. They're coming up front. And everybody's going to say amen because this little church had 800 baptisms this year. Everybody says amen. And we go home. Producing carnal churches. On a more damaging note, those who manipulate conversions don't live out genuine conversion in their own lives. So thus, like the troublemakers, they are hypocrites. Listen, using people to attract praise for themselves. That's just wicked. It's just wicked. Using people to profit self. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the edification of Christ and the preaching of the cross, trusting the Spirit of God to do what only He can do, and then rejoicing in what Christ has done. 
Not what the preacher's done or anybody else has done. We glory in the cross and its effectiveness to save men. Number two, verse 14, crucified. You see there in verse 14, and it says, but far be it from me. So in contrast to that, but far, Paul says, far be it from me to boast. I'm boasting in myself. Paul says, I've looked in the mirror and I know what I saw. The only thing I'm going to boast in is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, this is his statement, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's not going to boast in the external merits of man. Paul's not going to boast in what men can do. He's not going to boast in, in that which is intended to gratify the flesh. Not only does he not boast in it, I would say it makes him downright sick. There's one exception for boasting for Paul. Paul says, I'm going to boast a lot about one thing. I'm going to boast about what Jesus did on Calvary. I'm going to talk about my Savior. I'm going to talk about substitution. I'm going to talk about propitiation. I'm going to talk about atonement. I'm going to talk about expiation. I'm going to tell you about the Son of God who came down from heaven and took on human flesh and lived a perfect life and stood in my place. I'm going to boast in the cross only. I'm going to boast in that which lays men low. Because when I look at the cross, it reminds me how wicked I am. It reminds me how great my sin is. I look at the cross and say, there's no, nothing in me that I could do. It's all Christ. Paul's going to boast in that which shows men their wickedness, their depravity. Paul's going to boast in that which shows how great a price must be paid. He looks at Calvary and says, infinite value in the blood of Christ. Paul boasts in the one who's nailed to a tree. Paul boasts in the finished work of Christ, and in so doing, he makes himself really small. That's good. Make yourself really small. Make Christ and his work on the cross really large. It's an excellent cross. The cross has crucified the world to Paul. What a blessing. Most people are trapped by the world. Paul's been crucified to the world. The cross killed the desires Paul had for carnal ambitions. He had all these carnal ambitions. He had a name and a reputation. He was sent out by leaders in the city to arrest Christians. He's like, forget all of that. I'm crucified to all of that. My carnal ambitions are over. The cross has killed all the world's temptations. And they've made, they've made all the world look to me. Paul says they all look like garbage. Yeah, Bunyan was right, which he often is. It's just like he said, faithful and Christian were dead to Vanity Fair. They just didn't have nothing to offer, nothing to offer them that they wanted. The fair was vehement to them for their lack of interest and killed faithful because he wouldn't participate with the world. Or you say, well, that's just an allegory. Fine. I'll give you the Bible then. This is what Paul himself says in Philippians 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, whatever that was, whatever gain I had, I count it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed. I, 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 Paul says, as a matter of fact, I count everything as a loss because there's this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things. I count the whole lot of it trash. In order for this purpose, that I might gain Christ. That I might be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from circumcision. 
No, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God depends on faith. That's where Paul's at. Application, Christianity is not lived by making much of yourself and gaining the applause of men. There's a lot of preachers need to hear that. It's of humble service with the motive for the glory of God and genuinely profiting the souls of men. The cross must be the centerpiece of who we are. It must remind us of our wickedness that we have apart from Christ. It must remind us of the amount of debt we were in before God paid our debt for us. It must remind us of the infinite value of the one who substituted for us. A right view of the cross makes the world's treasures look like dung. Our greatest desires become heavenward. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested if somebody walks down this aisle, repeats a prayer after me, waves their hand, winks their eye, or does some kind of something that I can coerce them to do through manipulation. I'm not interested in that. Here's what I'm interested in. A wicked sinner who hates God coming to faith in Jesus Christ, producing fruit for the glory of God, some of them a 30-fold, some of them 60-fold, some of them 100-fold, and them enduring to the very end for the glory of King Jesus for what he did. I can get on board with that. And I can glory in Christ. And I say, look what Christ did. And I look here at this congregation. I'm like, look what Christ did in you, in you, in you, in you. And I just figure out if some of you are saved. I've been walking with you for 10 years or 20 years. I'm like, I see fruit. I'm like, yeah, I think he's saved, she's saved, he's saved, she's saved. I can see it in their life. I don't need some kind of parade of numbers to justify my ministry in order that you applaud me because I can get some people dunked in the water. What I want to see is faithful in people who have fallen in love with Christ. Lastly, verses 15 and 16, creation. Look there in your text, the last two verses for tonight. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Again, that's just not the issue. This is the only thing that matters. A new creation. You don't have that. I don't care how many times you get circumcised or whether you ever get circumcised. But if you don't have a new creation, then you don't have a new heart and you don't have a right spirit and you haven't been born from above. Now, for everyone who will walk by this rule, you have peace and mercy on you, on, even upon the Israel of God. Circumcision is not the issue. Paul says that when it comes to right standing with God, it don't matter, circumcised or not. That doesn't count. That's not the issue. The work of the law will not merit any credit with God. It's not going to merit any credit. But also say this to be direct for our generation. Silly gimmicks are not the issue either. Silly gimmicks are not the issue. Look, whether you raised your hand in an evangelical service or didn't raise your hand is not the issue. Well, I didn't raise my hand. I don't think raising your hand is proof that you've been converted. I know it's not. Well, I didn't walk the aisle. Neither did my daddy. But I don't make him lost. Well, well they say you've got to walk up front. Exactly where did they say that? 
that you got to walk up front at the end of the service at 12 o'clock and do something up front. Where did they say that? What, what about, let's look at the text and see what Christianity looks like, what conversion looks like, and let's just see what the Bible says and examine whether or not you're that. Well, I didn't repeat the prayer exactly like the preacher said it. Whoever told you you had to repeat a prayer just like the preacher said it? Maybe you should just repent and ask Christ for mercy. It's not whether you join the church or not. Now, I think if you're a Christian, you're going to join a church, but that's another issue. But having a membership or not a membership is not the issue. It's just not. Doing all the silly things the evangelical world force us to do will not make you right with God. You can dim the lights. You can make it blue and red. You can do smoke. You can do the music. You can set the mood. You can get goosebumps on their arms. You can coerce them with your sob story and make them cry and feel so guilty that you get other Christians to walk forward first where lost people will feel more comfortable in walking forward. And you can do all of those gimmicks, all those silly things to force you to do some religious thing, but it won't make you right with God. The world is full of people who've done all of those things multiple times, and they're still not right with God. And by the way, a lot of them are like, been there, done that multiple times, and I ain't going back. It didn't work. No kidding, it didn't work. It's not the gospel. Doing, yeah, this is my line, but doing the gimmicks that I could literally get my dog Festus to do will not make you saved. Look, you put Festus back here by that wall, and I tell him to come down this aisle at the end of the service, he'll come down this aisle. If I tell him to sit here, he'll sit. If I tell him to shake my hand, he'll shake my hand. Then don't make him right with God. You're going to have to have something else to make you right with God. No, I don't believe dogs go to heaven, so there's that. What's the necessity here? A new creation. That's what you have to have. That's what it says. But a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you probably know it well. Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, this is what we know. Same word. He is a new creation. How, How so? The old is gone. And the new has come. There's been a radical, supernatural, internal work, and their nature has been changed, and they've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and it's obvious that now they walk to the beat of a different drummer. A person must be regenerate. You've got to have a new heart. You've got to have a new spirit. Walking forward like Jesus is geographically located won't give you a new heart. Raising your hand won't give you a new spirit. The only way that's going to happen is the Spirit of God's going to work on you. You're going to come to the conviction and the weight of your sin. You're going to repent and you're going to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. This is the only way it's going to happen. It's going to be internally done by the power of the Spirit of God, not the manipulation of man. must have a new nature. Those who experience regeneration by the Holy Spirit bear fruit. They bear fruit. You'll know them by the fruit they bear. They bear fruit to the glory of God. They follow Christ to the very end of their lives. He says in verse 16, those who walk by this rule 
There's a couple of Greek words for walk. This is a different one than the normal one that's used, the one that's more common. But to draw up in a line, uh, figuratively, uh, would be to be in line with a person, to be in line with something that's considered right conduct, hold to something. Paul would say it in Philippians 3.16, let us hold true to what we've attained. Let's line up to what's true. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step, walk in parallel with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Word is saying. Romans 4.12, which is fitting because it talks about Abraham and circumcision. He says, to make Abraham the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. They line themselves up with the same thing Abraham believed, the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham was right with God before he was circumcised. I say this to you. We say it the opposite way. My dad was made right with God long many years after he was coerced to walk down an aisle with his friends. He did that when he was young, when he was 60-something years old. Then he was made right with God. The rule is that we're to line up with faith. I don't care if you raise your hand, wink your eye. I don't care if you walk to the front at the end of the service. Here's what's important. Do you believe Christ? Do you believe Christ? Is your faith in Him alone for your salvation? Those who walk by the rule of faith will experience peace with God and mercy. It's even true for the Israel of God. He says in Romans, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's not by the letter. His praise is not from man. It's from God.